Amen. All right, well, we're talking about miracles today. Um, and, you know, some miracles are little miracles, and some miracles are big miracles, right? Sometimes we have some little ones. I want to tell you about a little one that our son, who lives in California, just texted us um, this week. He said this. He's about 26 now, so just so you know the context here. Things that make me extremely excited, he said. Yeah, you should have it up there. On my way to the grocery store, I was literally thinking about how cool it would be to find low-moisture, whole-milk, lactose-free mozzarella (laughs) somewhere for my pizza. But then I got sad because I was like, that's too niche. No one would ever make that. And then... Like a pure miracle, it actually existed at the store today from a brand I actually like. Go to the next picture. There it is. A miracle. I mean, God can do anything, right? Low moisture, whole milk, lactose-free, mozzarella. This just proves, of course, that God takes care of our Italian food, okay? He's taking care of the pizza, all right? I knew he was always going to care for our Italian food. So that's, you know, that's a little miracle, a good one, but a little one. But, of course, there's bigger miracles, too. We had two people in our home group share recently that they shouldn't be here alive because they had injuries that should have killed them, should have taken them, but God rescued them, saved them, and they're now here. They're a walking miracle. I've known people who've been down to their last penny and they needed to pay bills, and a check just randomly comes in the mail and it's for the exact amount that they need to pay that bill. I have seen people who... Uh, I know in my own family, watching my two parents who just were as far away from Christ as anyone possibly could be, and in the last weeks and months of their life, gave their life to Jesus. And I shared with you during worship the story of the man who's just sitting right there, where you guys were sitting, just sitting there, and just God healed his back. He wasn't even asking for it. So God does big miracles, does he not? He works. He works. And, you know, we can look at a miracle and say, well, it's just a coincidence, you know, might have happened anyway. And you know what? Maybe some of them are coincidences, we don't know. But then I like this quote from William Temple, the former Archbishop of Canterbury. He says this, when I pray, coincidences happen. And when I don't, they don't. (laughs) Anyone got an amen to that? So we have to look with eyes of faith at what God does. And when we do, when we look to see Jesus in what's happening in our life, we will find him. He's there, he's present. So I want to talk today, we're in chapter 2 of John, if you did not get a handout, it's just the chapter, it's just the book of John, chapter 2, but I'm having to print it out for you just so you can have it, it might be a little easier as you're reading, but you can also turn to it in your, in your phones or whatever, but we're on chapter 2, we're fully into now the book of signs, remember that's the first half of the book of John, the book of signs from verses, chapters 1 to 12, and it's, these are the signs that John recording the miracles of Jesus that Jesus does, but he wants us to see that they're not just random, they're not just coincidence, but he wants us to see them with the eyes of faith, that they are signs which point us to Jesus as the divine one, as the Son of God. They reveal the glory and power of Jesus Christ. They're the signs of his divinity. And so we're going to look at the first of the signs today, Jesus turning water into wine. And at the end of the miracle, John says this, when what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Remember the point of this whole book of John that we're studying this fall is that you may believe. He's telling us these stories that your faith would be built up. Church, I want your faith to be built up today by stories of healings that are taking place right here, of things that have taken place in the past and things that took place through Jesus. This is to build up our faith. And to help those of us who are maybe questioning our faith, who aren't sure, to say, oh, wow, Jesus is really the Son of God. He did all of these things. 
And so one of the things you can do that's really fun is to look up the Bible Project. Almost every book of the Bible, the Bible Project has a little video on, and they're really great. Um, So I encourage you to look up. There's two on John, actually, and one for each half of the book. But they they talked this week about how um, each of these chapters or stories in the first half of John all have the same pattern. Jesus performs a sign or makes a claim about himself. People misunderstand or get angry and controversy starts, and at the end of each story, people are forced to make a choice about who Jesus is. And so what I find fascinating about that is that not everybody believes. Not everybody sees the miracle and then believes. And, and I think that's interesting and something to keep in mind when sometimes we like to say, or maybe some of we know people who say, you know, if I could have only seen Jesus do all the miracles, then I'd believe in him. And the point is, you might have or you might have not. There were people here, there around Jesus who saw all of that, and, and they just wrote it off. Now, why did they write it off? For many of the people who saw and witnessed the miracles that Jesus did, particularly the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the problem is they, they saw the miracle, and for the most part, did not deny a miracle had taken place. That's what's kind of interesting. They, they were acknowledged it. They were mad about it, that he's healing on the Sabbath, or he's doing all these things that he wasn't supposed to do. So they saw the miracle, but they simply could not allow their worldview to be shifted. They just couldn't. It didn't fit, so they just rejected it. And their worldview was about a certain kind of Messiah and a certain way it was going to happen, and they themselves had too much power and time and energy invested into one way of thinking, and they just could not see around that. It's so easy for us to be like that, isn't it? To be so invested in one way, it's got to be just like this, it's got to look like this and feel like this, and yet here Jesus is doing a miracle in front of their face. And so Chan is challenging us here to see these miracles that Jesus does, to, to see them as something bigger, that they're pointing to his divinity. And if God is God, then he can do it however he wants to, <laughs> like we just sang, right? We need to make room for him to act and to move however he wants to. And it may not be what we expect. It certainly wasn't what they expected then. But when we look at Jesus and we recognize who he is, the Son of God, and we see what he can do, then faith follows. That you may believe. That's what the book of John is about. So let's, we're going to ask God to use these signs to build our faith. Amen, church? Let's, we want our faith. Even though you may say, I have faith, but we all need more faith, right? Um, we need more. We need more. There's going to be seven signs that we're going to see in the first half of John. And here they are. The changing of water into wine in chapter 2. The healing of the royal official's son in chapter 4. The healing of the paralytic at the pool in chapter 5. The feeding of more than 5,000 people with the fishes and loaves in chapter 6. Walking on water also in chapter 6. The healing of the man who was born blind, chapter 9. And then culminating in maybe the most amazing miracle of this first half of the book anyway. uh, The raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so we're going to see all these and every one of these is told so that you and I would believe so that we would be built up in our faith and strengthened in our faith. So let's start with the first one. We're going to read from John 2, verses 1 to 11. You can follow along on the sheet if you want. On the third day, a
So I'm gonna just talk about four things with this story today. Four things, I'm gonna talk about the day, the mother, the wine, and the miracle, okay? We're gonna, four things we're gonna touch on today. The day, the first one's the day. I promised you that sometimes we were gonna geek out on Bible, Bible stuff, and so we're about to do it, all right? So I, I might end up doing this every week. I don't know, but um, we'll see. But the, this is kind of like an interesting, just Bible uh, analysis thing that I just couldn't believe once I started looking at it. So let's, let's go back to where this thing starts. On the third day, a wedding took place. This is the only place in the book of John where a careful sequence of days is laid out, okay, where he talks about this day and that day and this day. And if we go back to the beginning of of chapter one, or actually the middle of chapter one, remember chapter one had a prologue, which is kind of the intro to the book, and then kind of starts with the real story at 119, okay, that's when he starts to tell the narrative of Jesus, and it starts at day one, okay, so that's day one, it's the questioning of John the Baptist by the the Jewish leaders. Then in John 129, it says, the next day. So that's day two. John the Baptist is pointing out Jesus to people, all right? That's what's happening on the next day. Then it says in John 1.35, the next day. John the Baptist is there with two disciples. He points out Jesus and they turn to follow him. We think one of them might have been John the writer. Then it says in John 1.43, the next day. So it's the counting up days here. Jesus left for Galilee. This is um, day four. Left for Galilee and called Philip and Nathaniel. And now in John 2.1, it says on the third day. So three days from that last event, the calling of Nathanael is when the first sign of Jesus' divinity appears. How many days is that? Seven. Anybody know what seven is? Seven is a really important number in the Bible, okay? It is a representation of fullness or completeness in Scripture. You see it all over Scripture. Anytime God is bringing forth something full and complete, it's, it's a seven. And so there's seven days of creation, Jesus made seven statements on the cross. Uh, In the Psalms, when God's words are compared to refined gold, it says it's refined seven times. There was a year the the Israelites were meant to cancel all the debts that they held toward each other. On which year? Seventh year. Jesus said we're to forgive one another how many times? Seventy times seven. Revelations has seven letters to seven churches, talks about seven bowls, seven lampstands, seven angels, seven trumpets. It's all these sevens, all right? And then John himself loves sevens, okay? Even in John's gospel, we already talked about how many miracles are there gonna be in this first half of the book of signs? Seven miracles, right? There's seven signs. And John also, if you were paying attention last week when we were on John 1, go back and read it, Jesus is given seven titles, in the, just the first chapter. These, the titles are Lamb of God, Messiah, Son of Man, Son of God, King of Israel, Rabbi, and Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth. So seven titles to Jesus just in the first chapter. And then throughout the book of John, there are seven I am statements. Am I right? Seven I am statements. What are they? The bread of life, the light of the world, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. All these sevens. Why all these sevens? Why does John keep bringing us back to that now, the seventh day when this miracle starts? It's because John is trying to show us this this man, Jesus, is the fullness and completeness of everything. Okay, this is not just a man who lived in a certain time in Roman times, in early Roman times. No, he is a man who is, brings all things together, all things under him. Colossians puts it this way, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things. This is important. John is showing us as he opens up Jesus' ministry on earth that he is the beginning and the end. 
the Alpha and the Omega. Everything begins and ends with Jesus. It's all about you. Jesus at the center of it all. We sang it all this morning. So this is what Jesus is. And after the seven, keep in mind, after the seven days of creation, the world was born, right? And now after seven days of the beginning of Jesus, Jesus' time here on earth, then he shows that he is God, the birthing of the kingdom of God on earth. And so there's it's so much significance to the sevens here and to that God is starting and he is the beginning and the end of Alpha and Omega. Isn't that cool? I just thought that was cool and I thought you had to see that this morning. And so that's why we're talking about the days. The day is important. Even the very day that he performs this miracle is theologically important and John makes sure that we realize that. Now let's go on to the mother. Let's talk about Mary just a little bit. I always feel there's a little bit of a TV movie-like quality to this little interchange between Mary and her son, Jesus. I mean, so Jesus' mother says to him, they have no wine. And then Jesus, it seems kind of rudely, he's like, woman, why do you involve me? It's not my time, right? And then she goes to the servants, just do whatever he tells you to do. And then, inexplicably, he goes ahead and changes the water into wine. So what's going on here? If I'm looking at it at face value, okay, my human way, what I think of is this a very typical mother-son interaction. I had them all the time, okay? You try to tell the boy to do something, because you know he should. He's supposed to. You're his mother, and you know best, and he's supposed to do it. But of course, what does he do? He says to you, I'm not doing that, because, you know, pride and oldest son, and they're an adult now. They don't need to do what mom says, and so they don't do it. And so what's a mom to do? She has no recourse to go around the boy (laughs) and go to his girlfriend or his friends and say, make sure he does that. And then they don't want to mess with you because you're like scary mom. And so they go, dude, like you got to do this. And then he does it and pretends that he was going to do it all along. Right? That's, I mean, not that I know anything about this, but that's mother manipulation at its highest, right? And uh, yeah, I do have three boys, but I, I didn't do any of that. Now, my question is, do we really think that's what's going on here? That's honestly was my first reading of that. You know, that's what it feels like to me. But I don't, I have a hard time seeing Mary, first of all, as a manipulative mother. I don't think so. I have an even harder time seeing Jesus as a prideful son who's trying to just avoid what mom wants him to do, right? So there's another way to look at this. We have to see what John is trying to bring out in this story. So I'm going to just bring out some points from this that will help us see this in a different way, in a different light. The first is, it is very unlikely that Mary was expecting Jesus to do a miracle. The scripture's very clear. This was his first miracle. It's not like Jesus was like a 10-year-old at home and just turning like his water into Kool-Aid or something for the fun of it. Like, this wasn't like a common thing. He wasn't doing all kinds of miracles. No, he was, this was his first one. So she would not have been expecting a miracle here. So what she was doing, most likely, was asking him for help. You know, it's funny, some of the commentators say she might have even had some responsibility in the party. Like, maybe it was a relative, and she was meant to be the one to bring the wine, and now she's in trouble. You know, like, who knows why she, you know, was, was caring about this, but she was asking him for help. Keep in mind that Joseph, by this time, had already probably passed away. He's not mentioned anywhere at being at the wedding. And so, as her firstborn son, in that time period, in that culture, she would have relied so heavily on Jesus for his help for his wisdom, for him to just come alongside her. And so um, very likely this is what she was doing. She was just asking him for help. Help, what are we going to do? There's no more wine. Second, when we think about Jesus addressing her as woman, that kind of sits under our skin a little bit, right? It sounds a little rough, a little harsh. Um, what we have to understand is that word there is actually a really hard word to translate. It is actually the same word that is used at the end when Jesus is on the cross and he looks at Mary and John and he says, Woman, behold your son, meaning John, take care of my mother. 
And that's the same word he uses. So it's a very tender time. Uh, it's not a rough, he's not being rude. Um, it's also apparently the same word that Augustus, the Roman emperor, addressed Cleopatra, the Egyptian queen, by. So it's a, it's a word of respect, actually. It's not a word of disrespect. Um, and so he was simply, um, you know, saying to her, it's an issuing of respect. The word that may be closer to it in English would be like, dear lady, or something like that. But we don't really have the exact translation here of a word that would translate well for that. So he's not being rude to her, for sure. But he is, however, offering a little bit of a rebuke. And the rebuke is this, his time had not yet come and it is clear that God is in charge of the timing. God is in charge of all things. No man or woman can force the hand of God and even with all the love and respect he has for his mother, that has to come underneath the calling that he has from his Father in heaven. And so he's saying here, this is, the time is gonna be in God's hands, not in your hands, not in anyone else's hands. So he's making that clear. And then fourth, Mary responds to this rebuke and this is the most interesting part, I think, not by arguing or pouting or manipulating, but she's simply showing persevering faith and trust in her son. Listen to what she's saying. She leaves the matter in his hands. She says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do, which is honestly what we should always be saying, right? I mean, how many times have we asked God for something, and he says no, and do we stomp around and pout and complain to everybody else about it, and, or... Can we take a page out of Mary's book here and say, God, do whatever you want to do. Whatever you need, God, I'll do it. We'll do it your way, not mine. And this is what Mary is doing here. She's leaving it in his hands. I love the way D.A. Carson, who's one of the top scholars on the book of John, puts it. He says this. to understand what is happening here. Now let's talk for a little bit about the wine. Okay, I've got to talk about the wine. It's a pretty big player in this little story. Um, first of all, I want to just tell you it was not grape juice, as some people try to tell you. Some people in traditions that, you know, don't approve of the use of alcohol will try to say that they drank unfermented juice, um, you know, back in the day. Um, this reminds me a little bit of a Babylon Bee spoof article that came out a few years ago. Um, there's a picture here. This is a bottle of Welch's grape juice discovered near the site of the Last Supper. And it says, the article went on to say, this is archaeological proof that Jesus served Welch's at the Last Supper. See, it wasn't wine after all. Of course, that's a joke. Um, alcohol is not a joke. It can destroy families and lives, and many of you are firsthand witnesses to that. Um, and so... We have to understand that there are great negative effects of the misuse of alcohol. Scripture points it out in Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So we cannot use this verse or any other passage about wine to sort of justify or minimize the effect of the abuse of alcohol has on a family, on a person. We also can't use it to pressure somebody who's decided they're not going to touch the stuff because they know themselves. We don't use it to pressure them to say, oh, you know, wine's okay, you can drink it. We don't do that. I have great respect for people who say, no, I know it's not good for me. I'm not going to use it. But it does show us that they did drink 
wine. <laughs> this is what they did in that day. Um, they drank, this is real wine that Jesus created here. We know that in part because on verse 10, the master is saying that the guests, you know, might have had too much to drink, meaning this was alcoholic, right? So they may have had too much to drink. Um, they expected that that would be alcoholic wine. It, we also know, it's kind of interesting, that they diluted the wine back in that day. So it was anywhere from one-third to one-tenth wine. So it's kind of like a weak beer. Doesn't sound too tasty to me. But uh, anyway, that's, you know, that's what they um, would have been drinking. Most importantly about this is that a, for a Jewish feast to run out of wine was a great humiliation. Wine was really important in that tradition, in that culture. Jewish weddings went on for days. Um, one of the commentators quotes a, a common rabbinical saying at the time, without wine there is no joy. <laughs> so this was what the rabbis are teaching. Um, drunkenness was a disgrace, but wine was still a key part of hospitality. If you didn't have enough wine, you were not hospitable, and hospitality is so important in that Middle Eastern culture. And so I love it that Jesus decides to take this, this serious situation for this little couple, whoever they were, some young couple probably getting married, and he decides out of his own love, for them, compassion, and in his own timing and in his own way, he steps in and he does a miracle. So let's talk about the miracle now. This is an incredible miracle. He takes six stone cisterns, big clay jars, holding 20 to 30 gallons of water filled to the brim and turns them into wine. If you calculate that, that's anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons of wine. And if there are five bottles of wine in a gallon, normal bottles of wine, then that means it's the equivalent of 600 to 900 bottles of wine. <laughs> I don't think I ever understood how much wine that was. That's a lot of wine. Party time. It's a party. It's a party. <laughs> and then, of course, on serving it to the master of the banquet, what does the, ban the master say? He says, this is the best. You saved the best till now. Why this miracle? Why would Jesus pick as his first thing to help some no-name couple? We don't even know who they are. He kind of does it privately. Why does he do this, this, this miracle, which essentially is just bringing like high-quality adult beverage to a party? Like, why? Why, <laughs> why did he do this? And as most things in John, we're going to see there's a deeper meaning. There's a deeper meaning to wine, and I just love this, too. This is a little bit geeking, but this is cool. Um, the Synoptic Gospels don't talk about this miracle, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They don't. Just John. But John, remember, is always pointing to the fulfillment. Remember the sevens? That the fulfillment that Jesus is the Messiah who was prophesied to come. And so I want to take us back to the Old Testament in Isaiah, Isaiah 25, 6. And it talks about a feast with fine wine. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich. Now, what's the mountain that Isaiah is talking about? We have to go back to Isaiah 2 for that. In the last days, the mountain. So the mountains of the Lord's temple, in the second half of this chapter, which we won't get to this morning, that we get into the story of Jesus overturning the money the changers tables in front of the temple remember he goes in there and he drives out the animals and the money changers because they're they're fleecing all the people around there and he he he's doing that in the temple and what does he say when he's there in john um i guess it's 2 19 he says to them um you know and the people there all think he's talking about the physical temple that they're standing in front of but he actually is talking about himself destroy this temple and i'll rise it up in three days the disciples figured it out after a while so Jesus is the mountain of the Lord's temple. It is, he is the place where heaven and earth 
meat, where there will be a rich feast of the finest of foods and the finest of wines. Fine wine and a fine feast is a sign of the kingdom to come, and Jesus has come. So John is saying, this is, this is what the feast is gonna be like. It's Jesus at the center of the feast, the lavish goodness and bounty that God is gonna pour out on his kingdom because now the Messiah is here. That's the feast. And then Isaiah 25 goes on to say this, on this mountain, so now we're, we know we're talking about The man says you saved the best till now. And John is telling us the best is here. The best is Jesus, and he is coming. He is the mountain of this temple, and to Jesus will be all the glory. He is the feast. He is the lavish banquet that he has laid out for us, is here for you now through Jesus. He is all the the lavishness of a feast with 900 bottles of fine drink and, and platters and platters of delicious meat. He is the grand celebration of feasting, and in him all tears will be wiped away. All our disgrace will be taken away. He is our hope and our trust and our salvation. This is what we got here in this little miracle of turning water into wine. Amen. So John, Jesus, in this very first miracle, is actually issuing an invitation. He's inviting you to his banquet table. And his banner over you is love. Come to him and your soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. Feast on him with joy and gladness. Look ahead to the feast he has for you. In Revelations 19, it says this, Hallelujah, for the Lord God our Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride, us, has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Amen. You and I are invited to his supper today. What Jesus did in Cana of Galilee caused the disciples to believe in him. May it cause you as well to believe in him. And interestingly enough, these two things that are in John 2, this turning of water into wine and the cleansing of the temple, which we didn't get to talk about today, go read it, it's really great, the rest of John 2, is, is actually a foretaste of the kingdom to come. Let me just read to you one last quote from J.C. Ryle. He says this when writing about John, to attend a marriage feast and cleanse the temple from profanation or defilement were among the first acts of our Lord's ministry at his first coming here in John. But to purify the whole visible church and hold a marriage supper will be among his first acts when he comes again. Do you see how rich John's writing is? John is tying in from the old, from the past, from the prophecies of old, and he's also pointing ahead to the future, to all that is to come, and he's saying, Jesus is the bringer of the feast. He's inviting you to a feast today. And so I want to invite the musicians to come back up, and we're going to be going into a time of communion, but before we do that, I want us to bring to him our empty cisterns. Where is some place in your life that you need a miracle? We talked about this a little bit during the worship time, and we prayed for one another, but I want to, I want to invite you again, and you might have said, well, I, I don't know, maybe I need healing, I don't know. This is the time to say to the Lord, I need the cistern of this to be filled in my life. I need this water turned into wine in my life. You are a miracle worker and I believe in you. God has given us these examples to follow that we would believe and trust that he is here 
Thus, he is the beginning of the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He is the hope and the source of all of our salvation. He's the feast, and he's inviting you to the feast today. So I'd like us just to take a few moments and just to listen to the first bit of the song that they're going to play. And if you would like to come up and get prayer, if you feel like, I need healing, I want to invite you to come up. We have prayer people at the tables who can pray for you. You can also just come and kneel at the altar. And then in a few minutes, we will go ahead and serve communion. Let's pray. Lord God, I just, we, we, we come before you today, and we ask you to fill up the cisterns of our souls. Lord, the empty places that are there, the places where we need healing. And God, we trust you that you, you are present. You're the miracle worker, Lord. Prophesied of old. Come on earth with us, now present with us through your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, come and heal. Let's take a moment and offer ourselves to God. going to continue into a time of communion, but I want to just keep this posture of worship, of, of coming to him with everything that you, you need. He is here. He's inviting you to his banquet. So I want to invite our, our communion servers to just come up and be ready. But you're welcome to come up and to pray, to kneel before or after you take communion. I want to point out that this communion that we take today is not, not the table of Gate City Vineyard or the Vineyard denomination or any other denomination. It is the table of Jesus Christ. So if you are a believer in Jesus today, we invite you to, to share communion with us. And if you're not, if there's something in you that's like, I haven't really made that commitment to him, what a beautiful time, what a wonderful time in this moment when we're confessing God is real, he is the son of God, he's the God of miracles, and we're here to celebrate and to remember him through communion. This would be a moment where you could give your heart to him. So, Lord, I just pray over these elements, God, that you would speak, Lord, that you would speak to us, Lord, if we need to come to know you, Lord, if we've been holding back in any way. We want to just say this morning, we believe. We want to be your child. On the night when she was betrayed, the Lord took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins, take and drink. I invite you to come forward. There's a gluten-free option available for you.